Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. Today we have a very special episode for you. Last month I had the pleasure of attending the Society of Chemical Manufacturers and Affiliates Annual Trade Show in Fort Worth, Texas, where I appeared on a panel discussion about how to communicate during a crisis event. One of my fellow panelists, Mark Henriquez, a partner at the law firm Womble Bond Dickinson, invited me to be a guest on his own podcast, and Mark was kind enough to share it with me so I can share it with you. So, please enjoy this rebroadcast of my conversation with Mark. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, with Womble Bond Dickinson. We are here at the SOCMA conference in Fort Worth, Texas. This is part of our specialty chemical series. My guest for this podcast is Leonard Greenberger with AKCG. Leonard and I were both on a panel dealing with crisis communications and how to deal with the media. And I thought for those of you that missed it or other listeners in our uh, stream, this would be a great way to recap some of the takeaways from that session. Leonard, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yep. We also have my partner, Brad DeVore. Brad, uh, glad you could join us as well, and feel free to chime in based on your experience. I know you've had a few uh, client crises over the years that you've had to deal with as well. Happy to be here. Leonard, when we did the presentation, I think we kind of structured it into a preparation before you have a crisis, how to deal with the crisis as it was happening, and then the aftermath of the crisis. And I'd like to do that uh, for this podcast, too. And starting with preparation, can you just share from your perspective, particularly on the public relations side, what kind of preparation should listeners be thinking about in terms of getting ready? Well, there's a whole lot to it. And as we discussed yesterday during the panel, it really is the most important part. If you are not prepared for a crisis before one comes, you are just not going to be able to respond very well. And I think it all starts with thinking about what are the most likely crises that you're going to face. You know, my firm, AKCG, takes a scenario-based approach to crisis, so we work with clients to help them identify those that they think are most likely, both internal and external. Yesterday, we focused mostly on incidents, so I would call those external, where you're going to have people outside your plant or company that are going to be reacting to what's happening. But you also have to think about internal crises, everything from sudden leadership transitions to financial mismanagement or any of those kinds of things. So the first step really is to sit down and say, okay, what is most likely to affect us in the next year or so? What do we have to get prepared for? That's great. And I know a number of our listeners manufacture chemicals. So, Brad, the, 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 uh, the possibility of an environmental issue is also very real. Any, any specific things maybe our chemical folks should be thinking about as they think about what might happen in those worst-case scenarios? Well, I mean, the, the kind of the classic scenario is there's a fire, there's an explosion, there's an um, on-site fatality or fatalities tend to draw the most interest from the regulators. So I would say those are the types of scenarios that chemical manufacturers need to focus on. And it depends on the chemistry that they're dealing with at a particular site. Some locations are far more likely to have explosions or fires than others. From an environmental attorney perspective, those are the things we tend to focus upon. And they need to be conjoined with the safety folks because there's going to be priority given by the governmental agencies, depending on whether this is truly a safety issue in their view, or is it an environmental issue? And often if it's viewed as a safety issue initially, that takes precedent, you know, and then it 
transfers over to the environmental. Um, the other scenario we've discussed before is um, what's the role of your insurance carrier, you know, in all this, what and being knowledgeable about what coverage you have, who you need to notify before you take, you know, there's a balance between taking action immediately <laughs> to address the issue or being accused of having engaged in spoliation of evidence or you're jeopardizing your insurance coverage. And that's a delicate balance that goes back and forth as well. And then just the overriding public relations aspect, apart from liability, the image of the company and collateral damage as a consequence of whatever the incident is. Absolutely. You mentioned regulators, and I guess the big ones that come to my mind are OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They've got very broad powers, and once you get someone who's killed or even sometimes severe injuries, OSHA gets involved and does their own investigation. They can issue citations if they find OSHA rules weren't complied with, everything from hard hats to escape valves to all sorts of things. And, and many of you that are OSHA regulated know there's that long checklist. And EPA, obviously, from an environmental standpoint. But there are other regulators too, right, Brad, that sometimes get involved? Well, you may have um, state-based EPA or the equivalent safety and health on the state level. The Chemical Safety Board will likely get involved depending on the circumstances. So there's multiple layers. And often they're jostling with each other as to who is going to get priority or who can assert jurisdiction initially and over what part, because everybody wants to get to the information. They want to conduct the interviews. They want to look at the documents. They want to look at the, quote, site, et cetera. So there's a balancing act to be done there where you want to be cooperative but still protective from a legal perspective of the client to the extent you can, but not getting close to the edge of obstruction or being alleged to have somehow slowed down or prevented the investigation taking its course. Right. Leonard, I know sometimes people talk about a tabletop. Could you tell our listeners what, what is a tabletop and what's the purpose of that? Once you have your scenarios in place, and that would include everything from who's going to be the spokesperson for your organization when an incident occurs, to the messages you're going to be conveying, to standby statements, both for traditional media and social media, as well as responsibilities for communicating with different stakeholders. You mentioned regulators, obviously a very important one, but somebody needs to be communicating to your employees, somebody needs to be responsible for communicating to your neighbors, whether they're residences or businesses, communicating to emergency responders. And so you have to take all of that into account. Once you have that in place and a real scenario that you want to drill, then you bring as many of those people into the room as you can and you essentially pretend, if you will, that a crisis has occurred and put everybody through the motions of it. And it's a great way to identify where gaps are, um, where you need to fix things, where you need to improve, what other elements you may need to add so that when something actually strikes, you're more ready to do it. And I think a very important part of those tabletops, we tend to think of them as being almost internal exercises. So many of the ones I've participated in that I haven't necessarily pulled together myself I find that it's only folk, people from the client that are sitting around the table. But I think it's very important to the extent you can to invite your external stakeholders into the room as well. The local fire chief, the mm -hmm. local police chief, um, your uh, legal representation, your outside counsel, uh, your insurance uh, agent, because all of them are going to have a role to play. And the, even if they don't participate necessarily, just to watch you go through the paces, number one, will make them 
more prepared to respond. Number two, we'll build, as we discussed yesterday, uh, deposit rather trust into the trust bank that you have with each one of those stakeholders so that when something really happens, you're not meeting these people for the first time. Uh, You've had some interaction with them. They've seen you go through their paces. You've demonstrated to them that you take this seriously just by inviting them to be a part of this exercise. So I think it's important to think about those external stakeholders in a tabletop as well. That's a great tip. Uh, We talked a little yesterday about how to pick your spokesperson, but I'm interested in your thoughts. That's something people often struggle with. Is it the CEO? Is it the plant manager? Is it an outside spokesperson? What are are some of the things that you recommend folks consider as they're going through that decisioning process? First, again, look at the scenarios that you think are most likely to play out and who the right spokesperson would be for each one. There may be some events that the plant manager can handle, but there may be others where the CEO needs to come in, particularly if it's a company with multiple locations. You have to decide, okay, how high is this going to go? How high does it need to go in order to demonstrate that you are committed to addressing this crisis, uh, that you are going to take any whatever steps are necessary to minimize the impact that it has on your business and the community, and really uh, just make sure everybody understands that it's getting the attention that it needs. So it really depends. But once you've made that determination, then it comes down to availability in a incident, is your plant manager going to have the time to be out uh, briefing the media or talking to some of your other external stakeholders? And I think you can have, even in a single crisis, multiple spokespeople, if you will. As I mentioned earlier, you need to think about all the stakeholders you're going to be communicating with and assign someone the responsibility of doing uh, that piece of the work. It may be, for example, that your communications director, if you have one, can take care of communicating with employees, which is another stakeholder, I think, Mm. often get left out or maybe second tier status, if you will. But to me, they're just as important because they're your ambassadors. So you want to think about all of that as you decide who's going to be speaking on behalf of your organization if something were to occur. And then, of course, it's important to get either that person or those people uh, trained and ready to go so that they're not hemming and hawing. They're familiar with having microphones and potentially cameras stuck in their face uh, and the like. And one... uh, aspect too that I mentioned yesterday that uh, seemed to be interesting to folks is I deal a lot in what's called risk communication, which is the science of communicating in what are known as high concern, low trust situations. And certainly if you have an event at your plant, even if you've deposited a lot of capital in your trust bank, you still are potentially going to uh, be taking a hit from a trust point of view. And in those situations, there are a number of different criteria by which people decide whether or not you are a trustworthy and credible source of information. And interestingly enough, the science shows that women are generally seen to be more trustworthy and credible than men. Um, It goes back to all kinds of societal aspects like women tend to be, and again, this is perception, so I'm not trying to say that this is reality (laughs) anymore. Things are changing. Uh, But women are nurses, they're teachers, they are the ones who get the kids up and make the lunches and get them off to school. Men just sit on the couch and watch baseball and drink beer. Again, that is not true, not the reality, but it's still the perception. So when all else is equal, if you can choose a woman to be your spokesperson, you're going to have an additional level of trust and credibility with your stakeholders at the start. That makes a lot of sense. What about, does AKCG sometimes serve as a spokesperson? And what are the considerations that go into having an experienced media person, but not necessarily a company employee 
serving that spokesperson role? We have provided that service to some degree, but I would suggest that you want to have a company representative be your spokesperson Mm -hmm. because there are all kinds of questions that could arise if you're hiring somebody like me to do that instead. And you don't want to get distracted by that kind of thing. You want to have somebody internal who clearly represents the organization and is there to, again, demonstrate to people that you're taking this seriously and doing everything you can to minimize the impact. That makes sense. All right. So in terms of preparation, we talked about the fact that um, you want to have your plan in place, figure out you know, who the key people are, who your spokesperson's going to be. You want to, once you've identified your scenarios and your participants, you want to do some tabletop exercises to actually practice it so you can see what it's like. Are there other things to do in advance of a crisis, or are we ready to to shift to the crisis itself? I think we're just about ready to shift to the crisis. Mm -hmm. I, I would argue you can't really prepare too much, but I recognize that people have other responsibilities have other and jobs. their day yeah, jobs, and jobs. there's only so much time you can devote to preparing for a crisis. Right. You know, one, one thing that I tell clients, I mentioned this yesterday, in the crisis, to me, that hopefully everything works as it's supposed to. Often it doesn't, right? People are, you have a brand new plant manager and they weren't there when you did your tabletop, so you got a problem. But I think the thing I stress to folks is the three Ps, which are people, plant and preservation. And I think the first two at least are fairly intuitive. You know, people and safety, and this is what the regulators focus on too, you've got to try to protect people. And that's your employees, but also community members. If you've got, you know, a fire that's out of control, you've got to contain it. If you've got toxic chemicals leaking, you know, that are going to jeopardize people, you've got to do the containment. You have to put people first. And then clearly you have to have this priority of people over plant, but plant is next. So you've got to then protect the plant and the equipment and your ability to continue operations. But the third thing that still needs to be top of mind is that preservation piece. And that's where Brad and I know as lawyers often focus on because sooner rather than later, people are going to be saying, how did this happen? You know, what caused it? Was it something you did wrong? Was it a piece of equipment that failed? Who made that piece of equipment? What you got supplied was different than what you were supposed to have. Why did your safeguards fail? Uh, There's lots of questions. And regulators want to know. Your insurance company wants to know. Potential litigation parties want to know. Uh, So there's going to be a lot of finger pointing. And the bigger the mess, the more finger pointing. You look at, you know, huge catastrophes like uh, oil spills and other stuff, and you can have a decade worth of litigation of finger pointing. So preservation becomes uh, really important. And I guess, Brad, that's that's my speech as a litigator. Any, anything you want to add on the three Ps or other things to think about as things are happening? No, no, I think you've covered it. Um, but following up on some of Leonard's comments, I think the training is really important. And I call it media training. There may be a better term for it. Um, and some redundancy within the company because it's been suggested in these comments, what happens if the plant manager is in Aruba <laughs> you know, right. and is not available? <laughs> you, know, you may not need to have seven or eight people, but you're going to have to have more than one who's kind of trained. And I've, I've gone through it, and I've seen other people go through it. And some people just have an inherent ability to communicate and be trustworthy. And others do not. And it's not a character flaw. It's just their personality, just their upbringing, whatever, influences in their life. 
So I, I agree, finding the right person or right people and getting them trained is imperative as far as that outward look. It may be a different person for the employees. It may be the person who's had been there for 30 years and is well-known to the employees and is trusted. You know, So I think you have to kind of look at those variables and who the audience is going to be and what you're trying to do. But echoing you on preservation is I've seen cases turn on who got the pipe that broke, who got possession of it, Yeah, you know, to get it assessed initially, and quite literally physical fights amongst attorneys trying to grab that piece of equipment, <laughs> yeah. you know, and who's going to control it. So trying to identify as early as possible what is really important there and getting control of it to the extent possible is often determinative on occasion of what your success is going to be later in the litigation. So I agree with that. Yeah, I think that's so true. And in horror stories of people that literally threw stuff away because it was damaged, they needed to clear the plant floor. Right. They didn't see why do we need to keep this broken piece of equipment around and start putting stuff in dumpsters that could end up being the key to the case later. Uh, it's just a mess. You got to be thinking about you know, before it gets moved, taking the pictures. Where was it at the time? What was its condition? Chain of custody issues about, okay, who had the pipe? Where did this pipe come from? If this is the pipe that cracked, who's had custody of it? What condition do we have? Photographs, video. Everyone's got a camera and a video camera now in their pocket. So it's not hard to do it, but in the crisis, often it forgets. And someone's like, well, where did that piece actually come from? And can you put a, is there a way to mark it with a piece of tape or a piece of chalk, something to identify this as this segment here? I mean, I almost think like the archaeological dig, right? They go in and you want to be very careful about documenting what you're disturbing. Um, this is in a way a crime scene, right? It may not be, you know, and OSHA treats it as a crime scene if it's a fatality. You need to have that kind of mentality, particularly, and again, we're not talking about a small $20,000, you know, piece of, if, if it's not a big claim, the, the stakes aren't as high. But where you have someone that's dead or you've got a community that's contaminated or you've got a PR nightmare on your hands, figuring out fault really is important. You've got to have someone with that crime scene mentality of, okay, before we touch anything, who's going to do it? How are we going to keep custody? Leonard, help us with the PR piece in that moment, because that's where the newspapers rush to the scene of the plant fire and shove microphones through the fence or interview people driving in or out. So how do you deal with that, that piece? Well, there are a lot of things I can think of that can trip you up as the crisis is actually unfolding, no matter how well you may have prepared for one, because in the heat of the battle, um, everything doesn't quite work the same as when you're sitting around a table and practicing it. Um, some of those things are, we talked about this before, uh, preparing your employees and sharing information with them to the extent that you can as the crisis unfolds. Because you mentioned everybody's got a phone and a camera in their pocket, which means everyone is essentially an eyewitness and potentially a reporter of what's going on. And they can share those pictures, those videos, those tweets over social media almost instantaneously. So a number of things there. Uh, one, you need to, as I said, just like nature, a crisis supports a vacuum. So if you are not sharing information with mm -hmm. your employees, they're going to fill that gap with rumors and innuendo or you know, just thoughts about what's going on. So the, don't forget to be communicating internally to the extent that you can. So you're providing information to try to mitigate that use of social media and any problems that may go out that way. You also have to be thinking about how to balance 
a number of different risks. There's reputational risk, there's legal risk, there's insurance risk, as we talked about yesterday. And ideally, in the planning process, you've come up with messages that sort of sit at the middle of that Venn diagram, if you um, if you draw it, that are safe for you to be sharing, but this is that you do not want them commenting to any reporters of any kind, that they should simply direct anybody who may accost them at the plant gate or in their drive to work, uh, that they should contact your media affairs person to ask any questions because you have to make sure you take control of that uh, narrative to the extent that you can. So there's an awful lot going on. I One thing I counsel my clients in those situations, it is okay to say you don't know because mm. when a crisis first strikes and even for a while afterwards, there are a lot of things you aren't going to know. Exactly what happened isn't going to be figured out probably maybe weeks or months um, in the future. So it's okay to say that, but you have to commit to providing an answer to whoever's asking the question, whether it's a reporter or a local city council member or even your own employees, and make sure you get them an answer when you promise to have it to them or be back to them to let them know, hey, we still don't have an answer for you and we'll get you one when we can. So it's okay to do that. We counsel clients do not say no comment. Rather saying you don't know, again, is an open and honest admission. I think most people are willing to accept that um, response. And then there's always the uh, answer that I think clients can fall back on that works not as well as we don't know, but still is, well, that's a matter of litigation or could be a matter of litigation, and we just aren't able to comment on that right now. I think most people from watching TV and movies (laughs) who've seen that are sort of like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Uh, They don't want to comment. Uh, although there are ways to prepare for somebody who comes back at you with, if you try to get away with that excuse as well. Yeah. I really think the advice of I don't know is, is solid advice. Again, it's honest, it builds credibility, and you often don't know. And there is this rush. Everyone, the media wants to know what happened. The community wants to know what happened. And eventually, you're gonna, you may not be able to say I don't know after a year, but it's going to take time to figure it out. So in that crisis... I think saying you don't know or you're not sure or you're looking into it, those are good and honest things to communicate. You know, we're concerned. This is what we do know. This is what we don't know. Um, I think all that works to build credibility and give you time, both time to figure it out, but also figure out your messaging, right? If you find out that it is your fault, you're going to have to figure out how to convey that in a way that, you know, accepts some responsibility and explains how you might fix it without admitting legal liability, right? That's a challenge. If you find out it's someone else's fault, you're going to want to think about how you communicate that, you know? So I, I think giving you time to figure it out and then figure out how you're going to present it is really key. So Yeah, it's a lot better than speculating in a way that may get you in mm-hmm. trouble further down the line. Now, do you combine that, I don't know, with, but we continue to investigate, we continue to seek the answer, we continue to cooperate with the regulators to the extent that's, I mean, is that kind of the follow-up as well, in addition to the just, I don't know? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll share with you a model that I came up with some years ago to answer difficult questions in crisis situations. And I call it the CAN model, C-A-N. The C stands for caring and empathy. Because what this research shows us is that in order to be a trustworthy, incredible source of information, more than anything else, you have to be seen as being caring and empathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, it can account for as much as half of your score, if you will, your trustworthy yeah. and credibility score. And the research also shows that most people will decide whether or not another person is caring and empathetic within 30 seconds of meeting them. And if wow. they make a decision that you're not caring and empathetic, it's almost impossible to change their minds. So when you're handling a difficult question, you want to lead with caring and empathy. And I think that's another way to 
I don't want to say fill the time or fill the space, but it's a safe place to be. That's a, that's a better way to put it. So I don't know is safe. It may not be ideal, but it's safe. Uh, caring and empathy is also safe. No one's ever going to take points away from you when you explain that you know this is something that is really concerning to you, that you're absolutely committed to addressing, figuring out what happened, making sure something like this doesn't happen again, if anybody's been hurt or even worse, killed, expressing sympathy for their families and for them and what you may be able to do for their families in this difficult time. You, know, you can fill a lot of time with that kind of thing. And I'm not telling you to, to fake it. You have to feel it, yeah, uh, right. which you should. Um, so that's the C, caring and empathy. Answering the question is then, okay, what is the message you want to get across? And it may very well be, we don't know exactly what's happened yet, but we're committed to finding out. And here are the steps we're taking uh, to make that happen. So that's the end, next steps. So we're going to be doing this, we're going to be doing that, we're going to be working with regulators, with local law enforcement, with local EMS providers to figure this out. And as soon as we know, we're going to share that information with everyone. That makes sense. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. I think that actually brings us to, that's that immediate response. Let's talk a little bit about afterwards. And I, I kind of think of two pieces. One is that follow-up communication as things are happening. Hopefully not, but perhaps correcting earlier miscommunications. And then also kind of lessons learned. But let, let's, let's start with that kind of follow-up. What, what, after you've gotten it under control, the fire's out, the, you know, you're, you're doing the investigation, what, what do you suggest in terms of managing media and, and PR in, in the aftermath of a crisis? Well, like anything, as time goes on and if this immediate situation is brought under control so that there's no additional risk to people or plant, as you point out, uh, you can begin to dial back some just because of the way the media cycle works. Reporters are going to go off and find something new to report about, but you don't want to forget uh, about those relationships. And when you have something new to report, reach out and let reporters know and other stakeholders too. Don't, it's very, what I've seen a lot of clients do is once they're through the worst of it and things have calmed down, they tend to pull back or retreat and stop communicating. And that can just create problems down the line. I don't mean you have to call a local reporter every day to say, <laughs> well, nothing new has happened in the last 24 hours, but I'll be back to you tomorrow. But whenever something of any significance happens, I think it's important to share that information, again, not just with external stakeholders, but with your employees as well. Going back to the same point, they're going to fill that vacuum of information if it's not there. So better that you're putting something out, even if it's just an update on where things stand and a commitment to continue to uh, look into things and share information as it becomes available. It's great. It's great. What about lessons learned? Do you, do you suggest some kind of review at the end? And what does that look like for folks? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, and once uh, something is settled down, and again, there's no additional risk to life or limb or property, uh, you can bring everyone together who may have been involved in the planning process and say, okay, let's do a real after action exercise here and see what worked and, and what didn't and what new procedures we need to put in place in order to do a better job. God forbid the next time something like this happens. So, you know, again, you can only prepare so much and you know things are going to happen that you didn't anticipate. So you're going to, you're going to learn. Mm -hmm. And I also encourage clients I work with, uh, I've worked with a number of chemical companies, pharmaceutical companies, uh, utilities on events that occur at a single site. Well, what you've learned from an event there can be applied to every one of the plants that your company owns, every one of the uh, 
power plants, every one of the uh, pharmaceutical plants, what, what have you. So it's important to not just share those lessons at the site itself, but what you've learned can be of value to your colleagues and coworkers elsewhere as well. So don't forget that aspect of things too. Terrific. I know we're almost out of time, but I do want to give you each an opportunity to give any final thoughts or tips as people deal with, uh, deal with crisis. Brad, I'll start with well, you. I'll frame it more as a question and then maybe some detail around it. But on occasion, what we find after the immediacy of the event, yet you have one or more reporters who keep coming back and touching upon the event. So I've had litigation before. Every time we would appear in court, the same reporter would show up, regurgitate the same storyline, bash the company, would never speak to the company directly, you know, et cetera. And so we began to work with some other reporters to try to balance the field by giving them actual information. But we actually used the hearings as a way of communicating out to the public because this particular reporter would sit in the very front row, three feet behind me <laughs> every time I would argue, and then he would cherry pick what he wanted out of the argument. And so we actually began to put into the arguments, here are the positive things that are going on you know, after the consequence of this. Here's the re remediation that's going on, forcing his hand to have to report it. You know, and it but anyway, so that's a, but how do you deal with, in the framework of a question, you know, how do you deal with somebody who just is recalcitrant? They're really not reporting. They, they have decided this is their bread and butter for some period of time, and they're just going to keep reporting on it. Any insights on how to deal with that? Uh, you know, uh, we didn't talk earlier about the importance of the media as a stakeholder and getting to know local reporters ahead of time to the extent that you can, whether you have somebody on staff who can do that or you hire a PR firm like ours to do that for you. What I've found is the vast majority of reporters are really just trying to do a good job and get the story right. And as counselors, our job is to help them do that. But you do have some reporters who just have an agenda. Um, a significant incident at a plant that affects the community is a big story. And uh, they rightfully are going to dig and dig and dig and not necessarily trust you as a source of information. Even if you put a lot of capital into that trust bank with the reporter, it, it may not pay off if something really goes wrong. So the best you can do there is to manage that relationship as best you can, as you suggested. You know, share as much information with the reporter as possible, but look for other ways to get your story out if that reporter is just not going to give you a fair shake. And in this day and age, you've got a lot of ways to do that through social media, your own website, your own owned media, if you will, and going to other reporters and trying to get them to perhaps tell a different, tell the story a different way with mm -hmm. giving you a more of a, again, a fair shake. Sounds good. Any, any final remarks you want to leave listeners with, Leonard? Uh, I would give you uh, two remarks. First, uh, it's always helpful to work with a PR firm like ours on these situations, both ahead of time and even during. Uh, we can come in and provide arms and legs and uh, assistance that uh, I think can be invaluable. And then I would also encourage all of those of you who are attorneys just to, you know, be nice, be respectful. <laughs> um, I have always have found in the relationships – let me step back. I am often brought in by external counsel mm -hmm. uh, when these situations arise because it's the external counsel that recognizes that the in-house communication staff just may not be prepared to deal with something like this. They're, that's not their daily jobs. And even though they may have prepared, they're not up for the challenge and they need help. 
and I've always found uh, working with the attorneys uh, that have been involved in the projects I've helped with have, have always been very respectful and, and helpful. But there is a bit of a tension because as a communicator, we want to say things. And as uh, attorneys, often they don't want to say anything at all. So <laughs> you have to find that sweet spot. And when you do, um, you can be very effective. I agree. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge attention, but you need to balance both. Reputation really matters. You need to protect it. It's much harder to regain it. I guess my final tip would be you should get your lawyers involved early. Don't forget about the attorney-client privilege uh, and the importance of helping your lawyers help do that investigation can make the process privileged so you can be finding out what happened at the direction of attorneys. So it's not going to protect the underlying facts, but all your thought processes and your initial hypothesis of who's at fault, a lot of that thought process can be protected if it's done as attorney-client work. So get your lawyer involved, protect the privilege, protect liability, protect your position with your insurance carrier. There's a lot of roles to play. So PR and lawyers are both uh, should be on that immediate contact list. You need to get them involved when the crisis occurs. So, well, Brian Leonard, thank you so much. Very interesting and practical tips. I know they can find you on your website if they have more questions, Leonard. And obviously, Brad, now you can find it at WombleBondDickinson.com. That's also where listeners can go to subscribe to the in-house roundhouse. You can also find us on iTunes or Google Play Store, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the in-house roundhouse. We'll see you at the next station. Thank you, as always, to Jim Cirillo at jimmyamgroup.com for our original music and to Rachel Greenberger for our original art. If you have any questions that you'd like to have answered on the podcast, please send an email to wtswtgt at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at wtswtgt. Until next time, always be positive. by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.